Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. I am one of your co-hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I am here with my lovely, exquisite, ever-so-fantastic wife. Hair flip. Thank you. I am Harmony Colangelo. I like your hair flip. I always hair flip on the side of my head that I don't actually have hair because it's shaved there, but you can actually hair flip. I mean, physically I can, but I don't have the motor skills to hair flip well, so... (laughs) It's a good thing no one can see it. (laughs) You know what? And that's why this is a podcast. This is an audio medium. So you know what? You don't have to know whether or not we are good at hair flipping. You just need to imagine the hair flip in order for it to work for you. So today's episode is going to be um, probably our most polarizing yet for a number of reasons. And I want everyone to know that this movie today... This is why the podcast even exists. Yeah, so a little bit of backstory for anyone who doesn't know, which is going to be most of you probably. Uh, Obviously, we're in quarantine, and we've spent most of our free time watching movies. And one that I've heard from literally every female friend I've ever had in my life that they love is... 10 Things I Hate About You, and they say, oh my god, how have you never seen this movie? It's so good. It's amazing. I love it. And maybe three months ago, four months ago, we finally saw it, or I saw it. You showed it to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hated it. (laughs) And Harmony's hatred for this movie, um, it was one of those moments that you have as a couple where you show somebody something that is really important to you and they don't like it. And you have this moment of like, oh my God, are we going to be able to get through this? And it was sort of this really difficult moment where I had to then sort of juggle all of these feelings that I've had since I was, you know, 11, 12 years old and sort of question, okay, well, do I actually like this movie? Or is this movie something that just meant a lot to me when I was a kid? And therefore, I'm missing out on a lot of on, on a lot of things because I'm blinded by nostalgia glasses. So after the the conversations that were had in regard to this movie, originally, we, you know, we had pitched this as a column for a couple of places. But again, quarantine and COVID, a lot of uh, publications are not uh, not thrown around the freelance money the way that they they once were if they ever were um 
So we decided, screw it, we're going to make a podcast because this was sort of the aha moment for both of us in realizing, okay, so some of the movies that I hold near and dear might actually not be good. And let's let's explore that. Yeah, there's definitely a big, I don't know, it's not a bone of contention, but I've read it, I've read other people's opinions because I want to see how other people have processed this. And this movie just had its um, 20th anniversary last year. So there's a lot of like deep dive think pieces of people reflecting back on it. And I feel like I'm screaming into the void because I am like the only person who does not like this film, <laughs> apparently. And a lot of what I was reading from people who were reflecting on it, there's definitely a lot of nostalgia, a lot of thinking of it in its time. But I think a lot of the things I more so have uh, issues with are ignored or certainly overshadowed by what I feel like are uh, fleeting positives. <laughs> so, so then let's let's dive into it. Let's dive into it. And the way that we typically start is we look at our main characters. And I want to... In all honesty, a, ma- a major part of this story is just focusing on Julia Stiles' character, Kat Stratford. Expressing my opinion is not a terrorist action. The way you expressed your opinion to Bobby Ridgway? By the way, his testicle retrieval operation went quite well, in case you're interested. I still maintain that he kicked himself in the balls. The point is, Kat, people perceive you as somewhat... Tempestuous? Heinous bitch is the term used most often. And you and I have very differing feelings on Kat, but at the same time, very, um, very similar thoughts, at least now. So I'll give my sort of introduction to Kat. So I saw 10 Things I Hate About You very young, definitely at a sleepover, um, probably for a birthday party. And I remember all of my friends having this moment where they identified that I was a lot like Kat because growing up, even though I was still doing things that were hyper feminine, like baton twirling and pageants, I was always like a tough bitch friend. I was the one who was always yelling about how you shouldn't let boys treat you this way. You shouldn't wear this because you feel obligated to. I was definitely kind of that insufferable little feminist, even as a very young child. You're still a tough bitch. I, there's a lot of cats behaviors that have rolled over into, into my adulthood. But I remember as an 11 year old seeing this character and feeling very seen because at this point, I also saw this movie before Freaky Friday mm-hmm. and I know well, we came out before it. Yeah, it came out before it. And, and I, I know that we've already talked about how much I resonated with Lindsay Lohan's character, but I, I really identified with Kat and she was sort of a role model for me as, as a, as a youngin. So for you as a full ass adult, how do you feel about Kat? Uh... It's a, it's a great sound. Thank you. So I see these memes go around kind of regularly about people who are now adults and they look back on childhood movies. The one that the biggest example usually being The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. And they look at it and go, oh, yeah, when I was a kid, I related to Ariel. I wanted a cute boy and I wanted to go on an adventure and it was great. And now I'm like 30 
and I look back on this and go, oh no, you're crazy, and this is a dumb idea, and King Trident was absolutely right, and I'm relating to the dad now. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about watching this movie, with no nostalgia for it, okay. and pretty much no context for it. Obviously, the adults in this movie are, um, they're, they're, they're a little overbearing, they're a lot. Mm-hmm. But I relate to the adults in this movie in relation to their opinions of Julia Stiles' character so much more than her because I like her on paper. Okay. I like parts of her. I hate her specifically. Okay. So this is this is sort of where the, the conversation sparked. So what is it specifically about her that you do not like? It's a lot of anecdotal things, for sure, and it's probably a fair bit of projecting. Okay. But her, as well as a lot of the other characters in this movie, I think are very believable. Okay. Like, she's an accurate representation of, like, an angry feminist high schooler from the late 90s. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I can say how much I think everyone else is also accurate of their archetypes later when we get to them, but... Also, she is like the 1999 embodiment of Tumblr feminism, white, angry Tumblr feminism that is rooted in parroting the opinions of people that you think are smarter than you because you're not old enough to have fully articulated your thoughts and really processed them. Like, there's definitely a moment where she's quoting some some platitude about something and her sister literally finishes her sentence on her big, intricate, like, entry to Feminism College Course 101 train of thought. Mm -hmm. And it's so much more of, like, yes, she just repeats the same things over and over again. She has the same opinions, and they're good, but also she's insufferable. Yeah, that was something that, looking back now as an adult, I definitely did not recognize when I was younger that sort of nuance of her feminism. And I think something else that I... I definitely did not catch as a child because why would you notice this sort of thing? But the deeply rooted white feminism that is Julia Stiles' character. I mean, she is coming from an incredibly privileged upbringing. I mean, it's it's sad that her mother is no longer in her life. Um, you know, we find out that she's, she's left. Um, but they live in this massive house with, you know... It looks like a bed and breakfast. It looks like a bed and breakfast. It's got this, you know, little sun nook for reading and a patio with a hot tub and, you know, the exercise bike. And their father, you know, is a is a delivery a delivery doctor or, you know, some... All we know is he's, he spends his days elbow deep in placenta. Yes. Um, so, Which I love that actor, by the way. Oh, I do too. He's, he's wonderful. But so, you know, this is somebody who's coming from a lot of money... So, yeah, the only real oppression that she's felt is due to her womanhood. So she sort of stamped her flag on it. And that's not to say that people who are experiencing misogyny can't be angry about it. Like, obviously we should, because misogyny is a really big problem and we have every yes. right to be angry. But also, bitch, check your privilege. Like, you are a seemingly straight white woman and you live in a very wealthy part of Seattle and you have a lot of money. And Kat, I want to thank you for your point of view. 
I know how difficult it must be for you to overcome all those years of upper-middle-class suburban oppression. Must be tough. But the next time you storm the PTA, crusading for better lunch meat or whatever it is you white girls complain about, ask them why they can't buy a book written by a black man. That's, That's right, right, Mom! Mom. Don't even get me started on you two. And the reason that I also say seemingly straight is because something that really bothers me about the way that this movie paints her character and something that I obviously would not have recognized as an 11 year old is that Julia Stiles's character for lack of, you know, a, a, a more fine tuned stereotype, her character is portrayed very much as a lesbian. Oh yeah. I had to ask you the first time, like is she, we're watching it and we're maybe 20 minutes in and I have to physically go, is she supposed to seem straight? Cause she doesn't. Right. And there's even the scene written in with, um, her sister's character and like the love interest of her sister. So Bianca and Cameron, uh, played by Larissa Olenek and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But there's a whole scene dedicated to like, oh, I found a picture of Jared Leto in her in her room, so I don't think she's same sex oriented. But it's like everything else about her screams lesbian. She's reading Sylvia Plath. She's going to like a lesbian, you know, nightclub. She listens to Bikini Kill. She listens to the raincoats. Like everything about her screams lesbian. And the fact that these are the interests she has that are presenting her as like the shrew, so to speak, is so fucking insulting, in my opinion. Yeah, everything that's supposed to be, and this is definitely a thing I keyed in on immediately, was everything that's supposed to be unpleasant about her is essentially 90s lesbian culture. Which if I were to take a big uh, bone of contention with, the question that Joseph Gordon-Levitt has for her sister is, oh, is she, you know, a, 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 a Katie Lang fan? It's the 90s. You should probably be asking about, like, Indigo Girls. <laughs> right. But that's splitting hairs. The point is that it's almost, like, super homophobic in a way that the punching bag is lesbian culture yes. in this movie. yes. And that really, really upsets me as an adult looking back at it. And obviously, we are speaking lesbian culture in stereotypical terms. I mean, there were plenty of lesbians in the 90s that were not interested in any of these things. But there were a lot that were. And these were very identifiable sort of traits. And these were communities. This was was the mainstream lesbian culture. Exactly. Like, these, these are the communities and the interests that we sort of had to unite each other. So the fact that that's being presented as, like... Ugh, this awful girl who likes to listen to ska music. Like, fuck you. And, like, that really... That's where I am very defensive of Kat, because it's like, yeah, no, I identify with that, and, like, liking those things does not make her any less of a woman. No, you all awesome. just have bad taste. Ska's awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we kind of touched on them a little bit, so let's sort of dive into the other main character. So her sister, Bianca, is sort of the antithesis of Kat. She's extremely feminine she's very boy crazy um what do you what do you make of bianca okay so in my reading of this to see if anybody shares the same opinions as me a big comparison that i saw people making between this movie and another one was clueless which Mm -hmm. obviously was our first episode we uploaded i'd say bianca is much more of the share trope yes i would agree 
of the, you know, 90s uh, superficial type, but without as many... With She's younger, so it makes sense, but she has fewer redeeming qualities than Cher does. But that really just comes down to this is not Bianca's story, that is Cher's story, and how much screen time they end up getting, so she's not right. as fleshed out. So I love this sort of backstory dynamic that is introduced in the final, probably, quarter of the film, mm-hmm. the third act, where we learn about Kat's backstory and why she essentially acts the way she is and why she's so, like, deliberately rebellious. And it's a lot of internalized misogyny that her sister Bianca calls her out on. Yes. And that is probably the best moment that Bianca gets, but also the most the most satisfying, I feel, towards Kat's character. And maybe it's just that I... I, I don't, I just don't like her, mm-hmm. but also I like her, I have an answer for everything, I have a criticism for everything, I'm totally self-righteous, and then getting called on her shit. Yeah, I and I do think that that conversation is one of the better moments of the film, because it is calling out the internalized misogyny that we all have. We all, and especially in the late 90s, this is definitely the, I'm not like most girls, culture that exists oh yeah the movie starts with a i'm not like other girls thing where some some fun girls are cruising around in their car listening to the bare naked ladies and cat pulls up listening to bad reputation by joan jett and it's the most on the nose i'm not like other girls kind of thing and it's it's so heavy-handed well especially too because cat also drives like an older car that's kind of fallen apart, which definitely kind of enforces this, like, I'm not into materialism thing. And again, like, as an 11-year-old, I was so into that because I was like, yeah, I'm also not like other girls. But it's like, no, we're perpetuating the very same thing that we are going to later criticize Kat for, which is why I like that moment, because it is important to acknowledge that. But one of the things that I find most frustrating is when we do find this backstory, which my assumption is that if people are listening to this, they've seen the movie, but the backstory is that one of the male love interests of Bianca, Joey Eat Me Donner, um, you know, once was dating Kat and she had like a really bad experience with him sexually. And while that is very normal and yes, a bad experience with a guy can absolutely be sort of the spark that lights the flame of people learning more about feminist theory and realizing that they should not be treated a certain way. I hate that a man is why Kat is the way she is because it's also painting this really weird picture of like, oh, she's this shrill, awful human being and nobody likes Kat, but oh, we should all kind of understand her. She had a bad experience with a guy. And it's and I don't like that. I don't like that sort of mentality that it, you know, it almost it's almost implying that like Kat was quote unquote ruined by this guy because now it's understandable why she's so shitty. You know, Joey was, Joey was shitty to her. That's why she's such an asshole now. And I don't like that. I really don't like that. Yeah, I don't like that either. It, it, there's two things about that whole thing I don't like. The first one being that, obviously what you said, but also with a lot of the, um, like, the coded, like, anti-lesbian rhetoric of the film's framing, Mm -hmm. it also feels like this, oh, you turned me gay kind of thing, whereas you turned me off from men. 
Right. Until Heath Ledger rolls along. And also, I we're 20 years moved from removed from this movie now, so like things have changed uh, a lot. So this was you know, commonplace in the late 90s. But when Bianca says, oh, why did I never hear about this? And Kat says, oh, I promised, uh, I swore that I would tell all the cheerleaders how little his dick was if he said anything. And that that's just a body shaming thing that it's a, it's a joke if you do it to men. But you, it's this double standard that I don't like. Yeah, I'm, I'm really not a big fan of, of the body shaming um, aspect of that either. Because, like, yeah, Joey's a shithead. And, like, he should be outed as being a shithead. You don't need to, like, body shame somebody for it. And I know some people may argue that, like, it's fair game because he's so vain and so shallow and really so dependent on his on his appearance that it's okay to, like hate on him for it but yeah that definitely rubs me the wrong way and of course that's very much a product of its time that was like extremely commonplace that was common up until a couple years ago people still do it though yeah and people still do it i mean even even to the most despicable of characters like i'm not gonna lie it makes me very uncomfortable as a fat person whenever people talk about like donald trump being like a fat piece of shit and it's like well yeah like dude is definitely fat and like i'm also a fat person but like don't hate him because he's fat hate him because he's a fucking dictator fascist asshole yeah like it's he, just he can be a piece of shit whether he's fat or not <laughs> exactly exactly um so that's definitely something that i kind of have to deal with and then the other thing with bianca too that i find her actually to be a little bit more endearing than a lot of the characters and i think it's because I see so much of Bianca and Kat as I do with myself and my own little sister. Yeah, we talked about this because when they're fighting, you go, oh, that's right. You never had a little sister. Yes, yes. Um, There is a very, very interesting dynamic that exists in teen movies between older sisters and younger sisters that doesn't get portrayed very often. A lot of times teen movies tend to be about teen girls and like pesky little brothers. It's usually not about teen girls and then their sister who's closer, like relatively close in age. That doesn't really happen a lot. Yeah. But the reason I think that sister dynamic resonates so much with me is because my own little sister was th- is three years younger than me. So when I was a senior, she was a freshman. But we are also wildly different in personality. Like my mom has made the joke for many, many years that her daughters are Daria and Quinn, like yeah. from Daria, which <laughs> it's so obvious. Which you've met my sister, so you you know. Um, and my sister's also a ginger, and I'm not, so it's even funnier. But. That is definitely the relationship that I had where I I definitely tried to protect my little sister from the evils of the world because I did experience, you know, trauma uh, at the hands of men when I was in high school and I wanted to protect her. And I, I have moments where sometimes I look back and I'm like, should I have not been such like an overbearing protector or should I have like let her experience you know how shitty the world is because I don't think she fully got the hey sometimes the world sucks experience until a lot later in life so I I have mixed thoughts on that but at the same time I also really like the banter between them because it feels very much like how sisters bug each other like I especially love the like you suck you suck like that is such a sister way to be annoyed with each other yeah um so i love that but we talking about bianca also i think leads us into talking about joseph gordon levitt's cameron what do we think of cameron 
He's a little creep. He just sees a girl on like his first day of school and goes, I'm in love with her. I must be with her. I'm con con going to concoct a scheme with Bernard the Elf. His name is David Krumholtz. Yes, I, I never remember that. <laughs> Whether it's Adam's family or this, or I never remember. I know, he's always Bernard the Elf to you. <laughs> yes, so I'm going to concoct a scheme with Bernard the Elf, and we're going to get an investor in the way of like the shitty school jock to pay a dude to date her sister so that I can date her, and there's just a lot of moving parts to this. But he's being a little goon. How do we get him to date Kat? I don't know. I mean, uh, we could pay him, but we don't have any money. Yeah, well, what we need is a backer. What's that? Someone with money who's stupid. He knows nothing about her. They honestly, I don't think, have very good chemistry because w what are their interests other than... French. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, they. I don't know Jeez. what their individual interests are. I don't know what their common interests are. Again, and he also manipulates her in that sense because he doesn't know shit all about speaking French. No. And he's tutoring her in French. Like, dude, you're fucking with her grades. She gets way better at French than him by the end of the movie anyway. That's very true. She does. Yeah, but I don't, I don't like them together at all because I think he's a little weirdo, which... When we were talking about this originally, I said, like, oh, he's like a freshman. That makes a lot of sense because he just looks like a baby. But you go, oh, no, he's a junior. No, it stops being less acceptable when you get a little older. And Yeah, he's either a junior or a senior because there's the, the big discussion of, like, I'm the only sophomore who got asked to prom. So that would imply that he needed to be a junior or a senior in order to ask the sophomore to prom. Yeah. I, I hate everything about what he's doing. And I... He's got completely superficial motivations. Yeah, it's... And it's something that is very... It's very hard to look back on as an adult because when you're a kid, you're like, oh, you know, he's going to the ends of the earth to be with this girl. But at the same time, it's like, no, he's manipulating a lot of people because he's not just manipulating... Um, you know, Joey in order to pay for Heath Ledger's character, whose name is just escaping me right now. He's not only manipulating Joey in order to make that happen, but then obviously he's in a weird sense of things. Like he's sort of manipulating Bianca because this is all being done under like false pretenses. Um, Patrick, duh, his name's Patrick Verona. How could I forget? Um, but then there's also like the implication with, with Patrick, he's now you know, getting somebody else involved in this grand scheme. There's a lot of kind of gross behavior that's going on here that feels very predatory. Um, and I yeah. don't like it. I don't, I don't either. And I dated girls in high school for very superficial reasons. And that reason was my type, like that I would date was anyone who was interested in me. I think that a lot so, of people have that in high school. So, so low, I, I had a very low bar for entry. It's like, oh, a girl has, is interested in me? Great. We're going on dates now. It, that's it. I did not have a, a great deal of options until I got a little older. So I, I didn't care who they were, what their personality, what their interests, what their hopes and dreams were. It didn't matter. It was just like the status of being in a relationship was good enough for me. Mm -hmm. So again, it comes to that thing where... I look at these characters, and at their core, I see them as believable, but I don't like them. <laughs> so, speaking of not liking, let's go into Heath Ledger's character. Let's talk about Patrick Verona. Where are you at with Patrick Verona? Because I think you and I are on somewhat of a similar page, but we're also 
on very differing pages because you don't have the nostalgia. So where, where, where are you? Where are you at with Patrick? Patrick is very, he's very self-assured uh, to a fault. He's very charming. He sucks. <laughs> the Okay, so prior to seeing this movie, the one scene I saw, uh, aside from maybe like a couple quotes uh, here and there, was him performing Can't Take My Eyes Off of You at the football stadium. Mm-hmm. And he's that's, that's his best scene. That's when he's his most likable and most charming and most fun. And it's not indicative of who he is pretty much the entire movie. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I love that scene. It is one of my favorite sort of like big romantic gestures yes. in cinema. It's, it's very nice. It's and it's very the perfect nice. song for that. I love you, baby, and if it's quite all right, I need you, baby, to warm the lonely night, I love you, baby, trust in me when I say, oh, pretty baby, don't bring me down, I pray, oh, pretty baby, now that I've found you, stay. And the marching band is horribly, their hor- their lines are terrible and they're not <laughs> doing a good job of being a band. And you went, hey, they probably just learned that song. And no, their their technique is terrible regardless. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's, it's really nice. And I wish that scene was a little more indicative of what he was like in that movie or kind of caused a shift in the movie. But it doesn't. It, it there's, there's a moment where they fight at the prom later and his his remedy for we're fighting i'm going to just grab your face and kiss you and that'll make it better and that doesn't work yeah it's definitely a moment when that when that kiss happens i i have to look at it twofold one i look at it as like dude read the room like that's not the appropriate action at this point but then i also have that understanding of like they're also in high school and high schoolers are idiots and they like they don't know how to like navigate a lot of these problems because this is the first time they've ever had to deal with them. So I can't totally knock him for going for it and it, you know, blowing up in his face because again, like this is that conditioning of the big romantic gesture of like, oh, well, it's okay. Just pull her in and kiss her tight and all will be well. Like that is such a trope that we see in a lot of movies. Oh yeah, that's a very 50s movie trope. Yes, exactly. So I, you know, I can't totally fault him on it. No, but at the same time, it comes to the whole thing of, I believe you as a high schooler. And again, I hate you. (laughs) My feelings on Patrick are not nearly as, I think, combative or aggressive as yours because I do think that there are a lot of like really redeeming and charming moments that he has but obviously his biggest fault is that he's not open about what's happening from the get-go and in all honesty I think that he should know that given the fact that like Julia Stiles hates Joey Donner that she hates like all these forms of sort of traditional courtship he's aware of all of those things I think that if he would have just sat her down maybe at Club Skunk and been like look here's the deal Joey wants to date your sister. He's paying me to go on dates with you. How about we take this fucker's money and just hang out with each other? I think she would have been down. Yeah. There's actually almost an entire King of the Hill episode about that. That is essentially (laughs) the same thing, but like sort of in reverse where... Connie's dad is paying Bobby to not date her. And mm-hmm. they just go, cool, let's just break up and take the money. Right. Which would be great, but he just 
there's this overconfidence about him that just I don't like. I feel like in his previous schools, based on his early uh, courting methods, where he just goes, you think I'm sexy, don't you? And just very cocky. I don't think he's ever had to work this hard to get with a girl before. And I think he likes the challenge. I think that's probably one of the things that interests him about Cat. Because ultimately, this movie is very much rooted in the unattainable girl. I mean, the reason that there's this entire sort of scheme even happening in the first place is because Bianca is not allowed to date. Yeah. Uh, the Stratford sisters are not allowed to date. And then the rule gets changed of, you know, Bianca can date when Cat does. And it's all about, you know, you you have to quote-unquote, tame the shrew, because obviously that's what this is loosely based on. Um, you have to tame the shrew in order for Bianca to be able to date. So the entire movie is centered around the girls that these guys can't have. And that's also kind of a weird problematic thing in my brain, because it's like, are you actually interested in these women? Or are you interested in the fact that you can't have them? And I would argue that Joey is only interested in Bianca because he can't have her, yeah. and he can have anything that he wants. Absolutely. And I think a weird thing that doesn't sit right for me in this movie is that the entire plot is driven by men in this, you know, essentially this girl movie with, you know, a female main character, and that's the real dynamic. But everything about it is moved by these guys' motivations in a way that, like, the original American Pie is all about them just trying to lose their virginity first. Or a movie like Superbad, which is super uncomfortable to go back to because Jonah Hill's character is believable and a dirtbag, but that movie's about, let's get drunk and let's get laid with these girls that we have crushes on, and those are, th those are, those are teen boy movies. Mm -hmm. But all of, like, the back workings of this film, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that these girls aren't aware of, is teen boy movie motivation. Yes. And it makes it so much more scummy. Yeah, I I do agree with you. And these are obviously the things that I watched as a kid and didn't recognize, likely because I was too young to to analyze what was really happening. And I've I've talked about this movie with people before, and a lot of people tend to just sort of brush that aside, like, oh, well, it's a movie, and oh, well, it's whatever. Well, uh, movies are important, and we learn a lot of things from movies. We learn a lot of behaviors from movies. And especially when we're young we sort of look to movies to help us sort of figure out who we are and how we navigate our places in the world. And it's very kind of concerning that this movie is so universally loved and there's really not a lot of critical thinking on it. Like I've seen a couple of articles here and there that are like, yeah, this didn't age as well as you think that it did. And I appreciate that those exist, but mostly it's a lot of people trying to defend this movie because the lack of representation of a character like Kat is so strong that people don't want to look at the other ugly aspects of this movie because they don't want to discount the importance of that character. Yeah, we, uh, so prior to recording this episode, we rewatched the movie again, mm -hmm. and I specifically went into it saying, hey, I'm not going to just sit here and harshly criticize the movie the whole time because mm -hmm. what's the point? If you're going in knowing you're not going to like something, then it's just going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I did not enjoy it anymore the second time. Yes. <laughs> but I could see, like, the gears turning more as I'm sitting there and, like, doing that, like, criticized thing where I'm just got hand out gesturing at the TV going, like, what is this? I could see you kind of catching up almost in a way. 
or or being on the same page as me in a way that wasn't there the first time. Oh yeah, and that's hard. And like that is a really hard thing to come to terms with because ultimately if somebody were to ask me how do you feel about 10 things I hate about you? My response is probably initially going to be like, I really like that movie. But then I'm going to include the asterisk of, but honestly, like, there's a lot of problems that I have with it. Because having these conversations with you, I think, are so important, not only just for us as a couple, but also because it really did offer this perspective that I've not ever had to think about because for the most part anybody who watches this movie has a great affinity for it and a lot of it is because we watched it when we were younger and even even some of the crit like the 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 deep dives that we looked into that happened last year they're overwhelmingly written by cis women and there was one that I read where there was a writer included in it who identifies as genderqueer but noted that they were assigned female at birth and the unfortunate reality is like that matters that shit matters because Uh it's the way that we're socially conditioned you know the way that we can identify can change and evolve over time but how we were living and existing in the world at the time that we consume the media is very fucking important and to say that it isn't or that it doesn't matter is frankly just it's just incorrect it's inaccurate yeah which we have we have a saying here in this household, and it's that we stand problematic faves. <laughs> we have a lot of them because there's a lot of there's a lot of good things you can take out of bad stories. There's good stuff you can even take out of this movie, but context is king. In that this is a movie that is very strongly 1999. Everything oh, about yeah. it is that year specifically. Even things as simple as the fact that Patrick Verona openly carries around this knife at school. Yeah. Well, this is pre-Columbine. Yeah, I screamed. I was like, how do you have a butterfly knife in school? Yeah, like this is a movie that was, you know, it came out less than a month before Columbine happened. So there's so many things in this that seem kind of bananas in hindsight, but at the time, like, no, this makes complete sense. Yeah, so obviously you have to look at this movie in its time and its impact, but there's so many things that, for me, personally, that I look at this and I almost feel like we've graduated past this movie, where everything that it does right has been done so much better by other films, that if you haven't seen it before and you don't have nostalgia for it, you don't really need to revisit this movie in the way that you do another problematic fave, like Just One of the Guys. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. And I think, I think especially for, for women and looking at films that are geared sort of towards women, it's really, really hard for us sometimes to admit and accept that the movies that were made for us and meant for us um, aren't perfect because we're so used to not having anything. Oh yeah. That when we do get something, it's like okay, I have to, I have to protect this <laughs> with everything that I have. Yeah, you get the super short end of the stick, and you're gonna swing it as hard as you can. Exactly. That's exactly what I think's happening. So we we've been kind of jumping around a little bit. We touched on our main characters, we touched on some side characters and the relationships, but I really want to revisit something you mentioned earlier about identifying with the adult characters. Because I also had this moment where watching this as a kid, I was like, oh, these adults are lame and out of touch. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, no, I fucking love them. I love all of them. Yeah. 
They are, uh, before we move on, I do want to say that as far as the main characters go, as far as anything goes, the worst thing about Patrick is his hair. Is his hair. <laughs> I hate it hair. so much. You complained every time he was on screen. You're like, oh, I hate his hair so much. As a person with curly hair, I hate his hair so much. There's nothing redeemable about it. And it looks fine in other movies. It's specifically this movie. He has the worst hair. <laughs> and he's supposed to be handsome and like a heartthrob. And I don't get it because I just look <laughs> at that scummy, dirty, curly hair and I hate it. <laughs> Well, and, like, that's even something that I brought up about, like, how that was also, like, such a 90s thing because we that was the peak time where we were either, like, scrunching curls so they look, like, kind of crunchy and wet or it was, like, let's straighten the shit out of it. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of insight into, you know, curl hair protection the way that it is now. So I, I try not to be super shady about it, but also, like, the hair in this movie is so 90s. Like, when Julia Stiles rolls up to prom with her hair as tightly pulled on her scalp as possible and then just, like, a poof of curls on top, I'm like, oh, God, that is a homecoming look if I have ever seen it from, uh -huh. like, 2004. Ugh. So, yeah, I, I feel it. But, but yeah. anyway, our yes, adults, let's go to the adults. Our adults, yes. some of which don't have hair. <laughs> yes, they I don't. love the adults. They're my favorite characters in these movies, honestly. Like this movie, I there's there's three primary adults, and they are my three favorite characters. So I love Bianca and Kat's dad. Yeah, Larry Miller is like just giving a, a great fucking performance uh, he's so well typecast as that character he's really good as that character in the nutty professor as well yes and he's great in the princess diaries too. yes he's so good as that character so i think he is super fun and he like he's overbearing but you know it, it makes sense for again it's, it makes sense for a dad to be like oh i don't i have two daughters and there's no mother i'm afraid you're gonna get pregnant and be overprotective that's that's a dad thing to do what are the two house rules number one no dating till you graduate. Number two, no dating till you graduate. That's it. <sighs> Daddy, that's so unfair. All right, you want to know what's unfair? This is for you two. This morning, I delivered a set of twins to a 15-year-old girl. Do you know what she said to me? I'm a crack whore who should have made my skeezy boyfriend wear a condom? Close, but no. She said I should have listened to my father. She did not. Well, that's what she would have said if she wasn't so doped up. Yeah, and the thing, too, is that, like, he has a lot of these, like, backwards and, like, paranoid uh, sort of ideas about how the world works, and he's called on them constantly. Oh, yeah. Like, he's not presented in a way where we're supposed to, like, really take what where he says right. seriously or where he's right. Yeah. yeah. Like, Bianca calls him constantly uh, to the table for being like, um, okay, so let's take for one second and believe that you're not unhinged. What? <laughs> like, yeah. so I really, I really enjoy that performance because sometimes dads are going to be <laughs> out of control and weird dads. And I think that it goes to kind of enforce this sort of misogynistic idea of like, we need to protect women. And I think that that's part of that internalized misogyny that that cat carries for Bianca's like, I need to protect her. And it's in a weird way, like, that's very in line with, like, the the behaviors of their father that they're trying to criticize. Yeah, which he is really believable for me because growing up, my mom worked in x-rays. She's mm -hmm. since moved on mostly to mammograms, but she worked in x-rays, which meant we were not allowed to do anything mildly dangerous 
because she worked at a hospital and would see people getting injured constantly and was afraid that we were going to end up like broken and just like piles of bones and skin <laughs> on the floor because she, I saw someone come in and he broke his leg. The bone was sticking through the skin. You, that could be you if you do this mild thing, like jump off the deck that's two feet. <laughs> Super overprotective. So I think he is He's very on the nose for me, not in relation <laughs> to my dad, but for my mom. The other characters are my two favorites, my absolute favorites in the movie. One is Allison Janney. Oh, is Ms. Perky? I love uh, her so much. The erotic writing guidance counselor. We all deserve one. Oh, God. I, I love everything about her, and I remember specifically going into this movie a second time, going... Man, I wish this movie had more of her. She's in like the first five minutes and then never comes back. And you go, no, she comes back. No, she, she doesn't. She doesn't come back. <laughs> she has a blooper in the credits and that's it. And she never comes back and it breaks my heart. And it kills me because in my brain, she's such a pivotal character in it that I was like, there's no way she doesn't come back. But it's like, nope, she just showed up and was that impactful in this movie that you think she's in it more than she is because she's so good. Yeah, why? And weirdly, like, the framing of the movie sets her up. Like, she's going to be, like, this important character. Like, oh, maybe she'll she'll talk to the students and this will be, like, a thing. No, she never comes back. They don't need guidance, apparently. Yeah. And it's, it's also funny because the way that she communicates with students is also very 90s. Like, the shit she gets away with. You could never get away with oh, ever. Like Joseph Gordon Levitt's character is like stunned when she says the things she does. Like she swears at him. He's just like, um, am I in the right room? Yeah, it like completely takes him off guard. Or like when Patrick gets in trouble because he did some sort of like gesture with a bratwurst or whatever, and her response was like, Aren't we optimistic or something like that? It's like, you can't say that to no, children. <laughs> no, and that ties into uh, my favorite my third favorite character. The black English teacher whose name I don't Mr. know. Mr. Morgan. <laughs> I love Mr. Morgan because he is so done with everyone's shit. He is yelling at, like, he just scolds people and tears them down and be like, no, you're a dumb white person and I hate you. It's, it's so, and the thing is, it's so needed too because his aggression is so goddamn justified. Yes. It's like he talks, uh, you know, Kat is criticizing him about his curriculum, about how there's no women writers, which, yeah, that's a real problem in a lot of school curriculums is that it's exclusively, you know, a bunch of dead old white guys. Um, and he calls it out and he's like, yeah, you want women and I can't get, you know, a black writer either. So guess what? We're both... In, in a world of hurt because uh, once again it's that moment of like Kat is you know prioritizing like white feminism and yeah. is like well, we need lady writers which we do but we also need black writers like yeah. you're not the only one struggling here and the fact that once he says that the people who back him up are like the white Rastafarians and he's like don't start with me and it's like I can't even imagine the amount of fucking like aggression and anger I would have having to teach these kids every day who are just walking insults to, you know, black culture. Like, fuck those kids. Yeah, like, okay, so when they're doing their little tour around the school, when when Bernard the Elf, what's his character's name? Michael. <laughs> Michael. When, when Michael is giving uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character his tour around the school and kind of setting the stage where you have your generic teen movie thing of like, hey, we're in the courtyard and here's all of the various 
pods of clicks. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this, and I don't believe most of these. Like, I don't believe that Seattle has a large group of cowboys that like to hang out together. But maybe they do. Like, maybe they do. From there. I don't know, but I'm from a rural city and or a rural town, and we don't have that. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, listeners, if any of you live in Seattle and have this experience, please let us know. But I can kind of think that maybe there would be sort of like a cowboy click because it's that idea of, you know, being obsessed with a culture that doesn't exist where you live. So similarly to how I know that you and I have both talked about this before, about how there always tends to be there's a click at the high school of like white kids who are essentially trying to be black or trying to act like they're from the streets. And it's like, you're from like suburban, wealthy, wherever. Like, what are you doing? And it's that obsession with a culture that doesn't belong to them. So, you know, maybe, maybe there are people who are like really interested in kind of like this old West culture because it's so different than, you know, where they're from. I have no idea. I don't think it's old West culture. If this exists, it's just because it's the late nineties and country was real big. They were probably not old West cowboys. They were Garth Brooks cowboys. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Or maybe they just invented this click specifically for that scene at Bogey's house where they're all spitting chew tobacco in oh, like what looks like a family heirloom vase. Oh, it's so gross. It's and also, I, I like Bogey. He's my favorite <laughs> student. I like Bogey too because he's such a great one-off character. He barely has any lines, but he uh, he's played by Kyle Cease and his mannerisms are just so funny and his facial expressions are so funny. And of course, his name is Bogey because he likes to golf and that's so dumb and funny to me but yeah poor bogey he was just trying to have a nice you know little rich waspy night at home and got bombarded with a party yeah, he got murked yeah so that kind of that kind of sucks for him but <sighs> that's he's he's probably one of my favorite in like the canon of you know iconic one-off teen movie characters bogey's a good one yeah so speaking of all those characters bogey included a weird trend i noted noticed with this movie is that all of the main characters are very grounded, but all of the side characters are over the top. Mm-hmm. Yes, and very it much so. It's kind of weird where they are sort of living in this vaguely cartoony world. Like mm-hmm. Alice and Janney and like the situations at Bogey's house, like those are very unbelievable or cartoony or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then all of these other characters are our main core group that are in this big dating money scheme. They're all kind of plain in comparison, and I don't know what the deal with that is. Maybe it's to be more relatable, but it just strikes me as odd, because they look out of place in their own universe. Yeah, and what also makes it feel out of place is when there are moments of kind of like general asshattery, it makes it seem all the more aggressive. Um, A character that we haven't talked about is Bianca's best friend slash frenemy, Chastity played by Gabrielle Union. Yeah. And this is like the the late 90s, you know, Gabrielle Union played a lot of like the the black girl best friend roles mm-hmm. in a lot of these movies. And, you know, this is pre Bring It On, which I think is sort of what skyrocketed her out of like second banana roles and into it, it like gave her roles that actually had dialogue. Yeah, for real. But the the mean comments and kind of the back quote unquote backstabbing behavior that she has is so catty and petty compared to everything else that it's really uncomfortable to watch because no one else really seems to be 
quite that vindictive, but she's very much like, I'm going to take this man and like make fun of you in the bathroom. Like, yeah, you were just a bet. He was telling everyone who's going to nail you tonight. Like that's so shitty and mean girl. And no one else in the movie is quite that mean. So then when it's, you know, the only black character outside of the teacher, it's like, wow, both of the black characters in this movie are portrayed as like huge assholes. They're just very aggressive. Yeah, and yeah. I don't like that either. Like, that's that's uncomfortable. But again, it's also very late 90s, and that doesn't yeah. make it okay by any stretch of the imagination. But it's, it's just really gross to look at what behavior was normalized in the media that, again, when you're, you know, a little white girl watching this movie as an 11-year-old, you don't, you don't clock that stuff as easy. Yeah. All right, so typically this is where we talk about theming, but I think in our analysis of these characters and their relationships, the theming has sort of been embedded in those conversations because it's really difficult to have them without including it. Well, especially when you're in my role and you're being critical. And it's, it kind of it comes through a lot more. And it's so it's so difficult to have this conversation because I what I cannot stress enough for those that are listening at home is like I'm not having a good time here today. No, you look very uncomfortable. I'm on the couch. so uncomfortable on this couch because it's one of those things where it's like being to- it's. I don't know, it's like having, like, a favorite food and being told that, like, every time you eat this, like, they kill someone in order to make it. And it's like, uh It's not cruelty-free. Yeah, it's not cruelty-free. So it's like, this is movie that, you know, I saw so much of myself in with that character, and I always really identified it, and having to do that sort of emotional labor and unpack the the realization that I actually re- am really against a lot of what this movie is saying. Yeah, so... I think what's really important, and I guess we just kind of are naturally doing this in general with the just the nature of our podcast here, but teen movies, particularly teen girl movies, don't tend to get reanalyzed too much, or at least they aren't reevaluated in the same way that a lot of other films are retrospectively. And in the same way that we've talked to people about the Freaky Friday episode where they go, I didn't even think about that movie being really racist as a plot device you never really overanalyze it because I don't know if it's that it's children's media or teen media and you're not meant to put that much thought into it. But this is just, this is kind of a blind spot for everyone to to reflect back on almost. I think, I think that's really true. And I think a lot of it is because our initial first impression of a lot of these films happen when we're really young, where we may not have the language or the just the straight up knowledge to really understand what it is that we're seeing. And having to go back and do that work can be really difficult because it's forcing you to recognize all of those implicit biases that you have. Mm-hmm. The stuff that you looked over or glossed over, not necessarily because, you know, you, oh, you're an idiot, you couldn't see it, but sometimes it's just something that you don't recognize you don't have the lived experience you don't have the education you don't know to look for it or it's something that just straight up doesn't impact you or doesn't affect you and you're looking at it from a place of privilege and you know there's comfort in being able to ignore some of these more problematic aspects yeah you you said like you know a couple minutes ago that you aren't comfortable like this is not fun for you 
And it's not really, like, I'm not having fun. I don't enjoy just kind of shitting on something. Mm -hmm. There's there's no satisfaction of, like, I'm now the cat character who's morally superior because you all were wrong about a thing. I'm not enjoying that. I'm, <laughs> I think um, when it comes to films from our youth, when we revisit them, a big part of it is that a lot of our worldviews and opinions and stance and like critical thoughts kind of just evolve as we get older and we experience new things and take in new information. But when you're a teen, you operate strongly off of feeling and what you felt towards something is so much more prevalent than what you maybe thought about it. Mm-hmm. Especially because when you're younger, you don't necessarily have a, a brain that's trained to analyze something critically, especially when it comes to like social issues and, and more complicated things outside of your own specific bubble. Mm-hmm. And that makes this really difficult where you're reflecting on something and you feel good about it but now your brain and your emotions are colliding as who you were when you thought about this thing originally is not who you are now yeah and it's also it's also important to note that i am not the kind of person who likes to go back and add like modern quote-unquote woke interpretations on older films oh yeah me either i like that's not what we're here to do the difference is that these themes that we're pointing out in 10 things i hate about you they always existed these aren't just magically something that like oh this didn't age well like no those those were there they're part of the story it's just whether or not we were able to recognize them as preteens and teenagers that's what has changed is that we can now recognize what was always there yeah. and that's that's hard that's a really hard thing to do so i i know for sure there are plenty of people listening to this right now that are probably fuming because they love this movie and they want to defend it and the thing is i'm there with you i am right there with you because ultimately i'm analyzing this recognizing how much of this movie i'm actually very much against but I still really like this movie, and I know yeah. that you don't. That's fine. You are allowed to like this movie. I'm not going to tell anyone they can't, but you have to take the good with the bad. And that's exactly it. I take this movie in the sense that I look at it as, you know what? In 1999, Kat was a really great character. She was a groundbreaking character, and she meant a lot to so many people. She was one of the very first teen girl movie characters who was allowed to be angry, who was allowed to be justified in her individuality. And I really, really love that a movie is letting a character like that be the center of a story. But at the same time, I can look at it and go, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff about this that we need to unpack because it is important. It's important to unpack these things and analyze and critique and love critically the these movies, because if something has this much of an impact, if you have met every, you know, woman friend that you have and they all speak highly of this movie, then it's important for us to try to figure out well what it is about the movie that we love what is it that's making us tick because if we love the fact that all these problematic elements are happening we need to do some some self-evaluations but if you love it because of you know this resonated with me at that time that's a different story yeah one of our one of our best friends who will be a guest on this show eventually uh when we proposed the idea of her coming on and said, hey, what movie do you want to do? Her first thought was, oh my god, I want to do 10 Things I Hate About You. And 
I had to tell her, yeah, um, I were actually already doing that episode, and she asked me, oh my god, how do you feel about it? And I had to explain to her that, like, oh, I did not enjoy it. And I just saw her heart sink, and it made me feel (laughs) so bad. And so much of what we do with these film breakdowns is essentially me showing my ass, kind of. Because a little bit. the whole premise of this is that I don't have the same formative teen experiences that cis women have. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it's about. And that means my womanhood is established in a completely different, like, furnace. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gilded by, by a different fire. And when it comes to a movie like this that is so universally beloved, I feel like I'm supposed to like it. Mm-hmm. And it creates this complicated thing where then I have this gut reaction that somehow I'm not, I'm in, invalid, which like, I know that's not right. Like it's the, the first few seconds and I go, oh, I, I'm, my womanhood is not called into the question because I think Heath Ledger has terrible hair in this movie. <laughs> like that is not, it's fine. I can live with that. But it's it's definitely this thing that I'm now having to reevaluate and grapple with where I feel like I'm supposed to like something and I don't. And what's that say about me? And now I have to think way harder about this because it's so much more complicated to analyze why you don't like something than why you do. I, I agree with you. And you're sort of diving into, I, I guess, our last subject, which is what this film says about girlhood and how that relates to you specifically. Um, I, I think that you've, you've been touching on a little bit about how you're, you know, you're feeling some kind of way for not liking this and knowing so many cis women do like this. So if you, if you feel comfortable and are willing to sort of unpack that a little bit more, like I'm, I'm fascinated by this because this is a conversation you and I have not had up until this moment. So um, I, I would love to, to learn more if you're willing and you know i'm sure our listeners would too but you can always tell me to fuck off into the sun that's always an option well that's not very good television (laughs) thank fuck we're not on television (laughs) so funny story for everyone listening it's been a few seconds for you but for us it's actually been a couple days because we tried to talk about how my womanhood is feels compromised by not liking things like 10 things I hate about you. And I, I hadn't sorted those feelings out yet and it didn't, uh, we didn't get very far. So we took some time off and now I think we're ready to, uh, to dive into this subject a little bit better. And that's one of the, the magical things about podcasting is that we can, we can take those time. We can take that time to really, analyze what it is that we want to say because ultimately while it may seem like oh this is just a podcast I mean this is a a pretty intense conversation that we're about to dive into and I doubt anyone listening to this uh, ha- <laughs> uh could have predicted that this is where this podcast is going to turn into I didn't <laughs> no I don't I don't think either of us did um and you listening at home um I mean if you could have predicted that this is where we're going then you should probably, you know, try the lottery. But um, Harmony, what are what are some things that you want to that you want to sort of talk about? Uh, the the subject that I wanted to get on with with how I feel weird about not liking 
things that are generally seen as like a universal experience of mm-hmm. like adolescent girlhood for people my age. Mm-hmm. It's that I have to look at how womanhood isn't universal. Mm-hmm. And that's not really a subject that has to be dived quite in, dived into quite as deep mm-hmm. for cis women as it does for me because by acknowledging that, you know, I wasn't always a woman, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of trans women say, oh, I, I was always a, a girl or a woman, I just didn't know it yet pre-transitioning, and I've heard trans people talk about that, you know, one way or the other, about mm-hmm. how they support or don't that idea, but by even acknowledging that you're sort of falling into this trap that TERFs have set, where you are helping their argument. And for anyone who's not familiar with what a TERF is, they are trans-exclusionary radical feminists, or NOT FUCKING FEMINISTS! (laughs) Sorry, I had to get that out of my system. And their whole argument is that trans women are just men in like disguise or in costumes trying to infiltrate women's spaces and that they're not real women and that they're like a threat mm-hmm. and having to dive into the subject is essentially saying hey you're kind of right but you're not the the problem that we have with turf rhetoric and I'll I'll be the one to say you know speaking as a a cis woman who is a pretty staunch feminist no they're not right they're they're fucking not right because their whole idea is you know trans women aren't real women because they didn't have the same experiences or whatever as cis women and the thing is I don't know another cis woman who has had the exact same adolescent experience or lived experiences as I have. Cis women have a variety of lived experiences. There is no great equalizer. Like, they'll say things like, oh, well, you don't know what it's like to have menstruated. You know what? There are plenty of women who don't know what it's like to have menstruated who have been able to menstruate, you know, theoretically speaking, should be able to menstruate, as in, like, they're cis women. But, you know, I got my period when I was nine, versus my sibling who got hers much later in life because she was a gymnast. Our lived experiences are entirely different. Our junior high experiences were wildly different. That doesn't make either of us more or less of a woman the same way that it doesn't make trans people more or less of their of, of, of their true gender identity. Yes. Like, you're 100% right, and you're so heated. And I'm so heated <laughs> because I fucking cannot stand the people who dare to say like oh well i'm making a safe space like seriously jk rowling you can eat the corn out of my asshole like fuck you you dumb bitch do something better with your platform and like i hate using such heated and gender specific language but jk rowling fucking sucks because now there are all of these people that feel empowered and are buying into that brand of bullshit and i'm not here for it there are few times I ever feel quite as loved as you getting so aggressive about how much you hate people who are coming for me. I, I can't stand it. And it's also really funny because I've been thinking about the previous episodes that we've released. And for the most part, they're like a happy, fun, good time with like a little bit of political opinion. And today I'm like, not nah, gloves are off. If you don't believe that trans women are women, get the fuck out of my face. Yeah. 
what I wanted to say. Sorry. It's okay. I took over that conversation. I'm it, bad at this. It's okay. So, what I wanted to, like, go deeper into is when I say that, like, TERFs are right, but they're not. It's that TERFs believe trans women, uh, that, that, that they were men who became women. And depending on your perspective of that, that's true up to a point. You know, because you're you're treated by society as, in the case of trans women, obviously this will be the reverse for trans men, and then you'll have all of the for- various forms of genderqueer and non-binary people who this is just a whole different situation. Uh-huh. But you are treated by society, you know, in my case, as a young, a young man. People expect you to be one, people treat you like one, you're raised to be one, and you kind of have to acknowledge to an extent, or I, I certainly do, that I was not raised in the same way that cis women were. Mm-hmm. And to a point, my womanhood was asserted by sheer force of will. <laughs> and that is the like pivotal intersection where I go to the left and turfs go to the far alt-right. Yeah. Yeah. And where we sort of, we have very differing opinions on, on the trans experience. Mm-hmm. And to say that I'm less of a woman because I did not have, you know, this same upbringing as X person, you know, BJ mm-hmm. or JK Rowling or whoever, is really just saying that womanhood is a very, it's a linear experience. And that implies that there's one type of woman Right. And that's inherently not feminist. It, it's, an, it's an oxymoron of turf behavior. It gives off, like, wicked, super troubling, pink pussy hat white feminist energy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's what's so incredibly frustrating is that we, we tend to... Th- we tend to say that womanhood is defined by these particular markers, whether that's an experience or an interest or what have you. And what makes it so problematic and so frustrating is that even for cis women, that is not always the case. Like the one that gets brought up a lot, especially by people like fucking JK Rowling is the matter of assault. And one, I think it's super fucking gross to define womanhood by whether or not you've ever been dangerously assaulted or having to like fear for your body autonomy. Like I think that that's gross and that we are, you know, we deserve to be not regulated just towards our bodies and other people's relationships to our bodies. I think that's disgusting. I've definitely had certain people say that, um, because I wasn't raised a woman to be afraid that I am, you know, reckless and masculine in I'm, 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 conditioned to be a man because I don't leave my house and am immediately fearful of my life when the reality of it is I'm statistically much more likely to be injured or assaulted or whatever granted I recognize that because I'm white that's that does work in my favor unfortunately because trans women of color are what boosts those statistics as yeah, high as they do so that's that's an ugly thing for me to also say is that hey, I'm not as afraid because I'm white. Like, I definitely have one strike against me, but I have one working in my favor, and that's an ugly truth. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to acknowledge that. Yeah, 
And, and that's what's so frustrating is that, you know, with this turfy behavior, that they, they fail to acknowledge that you are actually far more marginalized than a cis woman would be. And it just, it just, endless, it just frustrates the hell out of me. So in terms of 10 things I hate about you, where this gets into this weird sort of conundrum is that I'm definitely in the same camp that you are. Like, I really sat here and had to think about it. Do I know any women in my life, uh, trans or, or cis, that do not like 10 Things I Hate About You or who have ever been, you know, adverse to it in any way, shape, or form? And I don't know if I've ever met someone who didn't love this. Yeah. And that, you know, that was really eye-opening for me, talking to you and hearing you talk about this movie and what you don't like about it. Because, one, it it forced me to check my own sort of implicit biases. Like, why is it that I like this movie? Do I like this movie because I actually like what it's saying? Or do I like this movie because, oh my God, there's finally like a feminist female lead and I identify with that? Mm -hmm. Do I actually like what this movie is trying to motivate me or tell me or convince me to believe? Or am I just really, really excited that there is a female lead who is quote-unquote not like the other girls. I'm also not like the other girls. I don't think either of us are like most girls. We don't (laughs) roll around in a convertible with our friends listening to the Bare Naked Ladies. And that's exactly it. That is exactly it. This movie opens on the messaging of, you know, oh my gosh, look at like the the prissy preppy girls that listen to bare naked ladies and oh now we've got this bad girl who listens to Joan Jett like it's already feeding into that not like most girls like toxic mentality and it's really uncomfortable when you call it for what it is because now I'm sitting here going oh wow yeah this movie that I've cherished for my entire life kind of goes against everything that I actually believe in yeah so in in the time I've had to that we've taken between the first part of this episode and now this this ending part is mm-hmm. I've digest my feelings and I look at this movie in sort of two different directions. On one hand, it is inherently it's doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. It's saying like womanhood is not it's not a linear path. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. Mm-hmm. It does it in a it does it in a sloppy white feminist kind of way, but right. like its heart's in the right place. It's it's messy and not particularly aged well. Right. And then on the other hand, I, I, we, we've talked about this in our off-mic conversations, <laughs> but do you ever feel so much more adverse about something when you're told or it's implied that you're supposed to like it? Oh, oh yeah. It, like... where, you're, where your apathy or maybe you're just like, you know, neutral feelings are now going, no, because I don't have the massive adoration for this mm-hmm. i now have been annoyed into the negative mm-hmm. that's kind of what this is like yeah and <laughs> if, if this film was just like a normal film like say it was any any other movie the fucking lizzie mcguire movie doesn't matter if it was any other movie this wouldn't be a conversation that i'm so frustrated about having because it's not trying to say as much mm-hmm. and it's not doing such a bad job of it mm-hmm. and I I wasn't like super socially conscious when I was like eight years old but I like to think that this movie did 
it did a good job comparatively for when it came out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is just how, how time changes. Mm-hmm. This movie could have either, depending on, like, the direction that society could have gone on when it got to its own fork in the road, this movie could have very easily come with us, or it could have gone in the bad direction because it accidentally didn't do things right, you know? Mm-hmm. Stuff only is correct in hindsight. Mm-hmm. And people are desperately trying to drag it from the other path that it's going down, and it's just, it's not working. Yeah. And no one's acknowledging that, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that this is one of those situations, and we talk about this frequently um, in terms of queer representation, and that we so so frequently don't see ourselves represented in film and television that we start to identify with whatever is the closest character. Um, like Godzilla. I, <laughs> Godzilla. Like, I know, I know so many queer men who see themselves in, like, final girl characters in slasher movies. That's a very common um, comparison to make. And I think what happened with something like 10 Things I Hate About You is that so many of... So many cis women who felt othered, who felt like they were not part of the status quo, that they were not, you know, the queen bee of high school, saw themselves in in Cat Stratford and therefore this became their movie. This is one of those moments where the representation was so shitty for so long of, you know, different quote unquote types or archetypes of women characters that when something like this came about it's like oh I have to cling to this like because now it becomes like this is mine this is where I feel seen this is my comfort and when you have that excitement it becomes really difficult to see the forest for the trees yeah and this is a this is something that you and I talk about daily about how when you're already marginalized, you cling so much more tightly to the things that are either representing you or that you feel do a good job representing you. Mm-hmm. And because there are so few examples, certainly for their time, of characters like Cat, people are way more protective of it. Yes. And it really champions this sort of gatekeeping mentality that is the, the moral elitist of not like other girls kind of things. Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating for me to see, which I've not had people be like aggressive. They're more so shocked, I guess. They're kind of in disbelief when I say I don't like this movie, just in conversation. They're never like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, it's, it's never quite so intense, but it's sort of has this air of the same kind of gatekeeping that a lot of, feminists criticize about male culture like you're not a real gamer if you don't like x thing for right, example right 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 yeah that's that's really what it is this is this is sort of this gatekeeping thing that exists in all of the male cultures that women tend to be trying you know we we have to fight for our seat at the table in um any sort of male dominated subgenre and then it's like you know we have this teen girl subgenre and when it comes to a movie like 10 things i hate about you yeah we're like people are so protective of it and it it does feel kind of gatekeepy and you know that kind of opens this entire can of worms of you know what what is an acceptable teen girl movie like mm-hmm. what are we supposed to like what are we allowed to like yeah. and you know that's just internalized misogyny and you know the snake eating its own tail and it is fascinating to me that i had fully intended to just show you a movie that i really liked 
from junior high where Alice and Janie is making really inappropriate dick jokes around high schoolers and Heath Ledger is singing on some cement stairs and making me nervous he's going to crack his head open and, you know, there's <laughs> there's references to Bikini Kill and there's female-led ska music. I, I love like, all of that on I paper. I was like, this is going to be great. And then the conversations that have sparked out of it have been some of the most meaningful that I've had in my entire career working as, you know, like a film theorist and analyst. So Aww, you make me feel smart. I just want to say thank you because this is this is definitely one of those moments where... You know, I'm, I'm having that crisis of, of self where it's like, huh, I should probably reanalyze everything that, you know, I hold near and dear because if something that I loved this deeply, I'm now looking at and going, oh no, I don't like any of this messaging. What else am I holding true? Like what other, you know, implicit biases are going unchecked. Yeah, and this works in two directions, which is fair, because there's plenty of movies where I say, like, oh, I remember that movie being pretty okay, and you go, no, it's not. It's really bad. <laughs> like, uh, what was the one the other day where um, I bought a bunch of cheap DVDs for, like, a buck twelve each because nobody wants to own the new guy on DVD, <laughs> but I like that movie. And... Then I started getting recommended, like, would you like to purchase Shallow Hal? And I'm like, I think I remember liking that movie. It's been a long time. And you go, no, it's terrible. I hate it. <laughs> yeah, fuck Shallow Hal. Fuck Shallow Hal and the idea that the only way you can be beautiful, even on the inside, is to be thin. Like, that movie can go away forever. Yes. Now, granted, this was not a pillar of my identity, but this has worked <laughs> in both ways. But we're yes. not going to get to talk about my guy movie. He's really in the same light. <laughs> I mean, maybe someday. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe someday. So I think I already know your answer to this, but in the interest of, of theming, 10 Things I Hate About You is asking you to the prom, Harmony. Is it a yes, no, or maybe? And are you sending any note back? That's going to be a note from me, dog. <laughs> I will still go to prom because Letters to Cleo and Safe Ferris are playing. So, like, not going to miss that. But I definitely do not want to go with, with 10 Things I Hate About You. It, it can firmly be rejected in front of the rest of the school, out in the quad, in front of the white Rastafarian kids and the cowboys. So in this instance, are you going to be Bianca and 10 Things I Hate About You is going to be Joey Donner and you're just going to punch it in the fucking face in front of everyone? Yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> and... I'm sorry to this film that it had to be the sacrificial lamb that we vented a lot of frustrations on because of it, but that's just the way it turned out. You know what? I think I think 10 Things I Hate About You has enough of a legion of fans that I think that it'll recover just fine. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right, everyone. That is that for this week of This Ends at Prom. I want to thank you again for listening and make sure that you rate, review, subscribe, wherever it is that you get your podcast. It helps, you know, helps us grow. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at my name, at BJ Colangelo Harmony. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, and I've been even working to use Instagram a little bit more lately. At Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. Uh, also, something to keep in mind, if you are not following us on Twitter and Instagram, we have been doing something really cool where we post where the movie is 
for for that week. So if you're like, oh, I want to know what they're talking about this week, and I'd also like to watch the movie, uh, you're in luck because I scour the internet and figure out where it is, where you can find it, where you can rent it, where it's streaming, so that way you can play along with us at home. Our theme music is by the Sonderbombs. They are the fucking tits. You should be listening to them on Spotify, downloading their music on Bandcamp, ordering their vinyl. They have just, their music just fucking rules and you, you need to be doing that. So enjoy. Have a great week. We will see you next time. Roll the music. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.